Hello everyone, welcome to episode 8 of Gossip, a podcast series where we discuss and try to better understand alternative perspectives on issues. The podcast series is part of Chris Network's ongoing efforts to create a safer space for discourse on gender inequality issues and human rights. My name is Angela Kugudas and I will be your host for today. Our topic today is on internet access. But how do we understand this issue from a gender lens? To help us unpack this question, our guest speakers, Frida Jane Madios, who's the research manager from Wisdom Foundation Sabah, and Mastura M. Rashid, who's vice president for strategy and development in Impact Malaysia. Welcome, and thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much to Chris Network for having us here. Thank you for having me. I just wanted to start out with some data to both of you in terms of understanding internet access. So 2020, the data shows that about 92% of the population has access to the internet in Malaysia. That's a really high percentage. In fact, with such a high percentage, we should not expect to see any kind of digital divides. Yet we have digital divides between rural and urban, men and women, and even between urban areas within the city of Kuala Lumpur. If we think about it, 8% of the 34 million population that does not have access amounts to 2.72 million people. We heard how Viviana Musibin had to climb a tree that's located on a hill, hours away from her village, Kampong Sepatalang Pitas in Sabah, and stay there overnight for a better internet connection just so she could do her exam. We also heard about how students would meet with accidents in trying to get to and remain in locations where internet access is better. In Larut, Siti Aisha Muhammad Iris, 17 years old, had to commute seven kilometers to her uncle's house to get better internet access. Canteen worker, Susiana Bidin, who's 32 years old, who lives in a village near Beaufort in interior Sabah, said her three children had to walk to a river about 45 minutes from home to access the internet. They take turns using the father's mobile phone to access the internet at the river. Another eight students also from Sabah would meet on a suspension bridge to get internet access for their online classes and narrowly escape death after plunging 18 meters when the bridge collapsed. One of them suffered spinal injuries. Which digital divides have you personally experienced or witnessed that you think it's important for the government to address? Maybe we can start with you, Mastura. Um, I'm going to answer this question based on the youth perspective as uh, Impact Malaysia. Uh, it is an initiative under Impact Integrated. We work to empower youth uh, both as change makers and as entrepreneurs. I would say that um, personally, I can divide my experiences into two on digital divide. First, on infrastructure. Second, on meaningful access. So on infrastructure, definitely um, youth, especially those in the rural areas and some suburban areas has pro have problems with connectivity. For example, uh, during MCO, during those PDPR, uh, PDP, PDPR periods, uh, PDPR where uh, youth have to like switch to online learning, um, the purchase of internet boosters uh, signal boosters in Shopee has increased and most of the uh, purchases are, are youth. So um, definitely connectivity is an issue. And def a second, the second part is meaningful access. So we have youth from the rural area. I've travelled to, for example, I travelled to Miri, uh, to Long Lama. That's um, like two hours from Miri and the, it is actually accessible by, by road. It is not off-road. Uh, the youth over there are very very connected in the sense of everyone has an Instagram account, everyone has Facebook, they do TikTok, but they find they find it hard to use uh, internet to uh, to connect to the government services to to use it to uh, for learning. They struggle with Google Meet with Zoom things abilities that take uh, that we take for granted on meaningful access so to me uh, both connectivity and meaningful access has similar importance uh, towards higher quality of life 
Before we go to Frida Mastura, um, because you you uh, referred to you know um, young people in Miri Sarawak, right? And then you talked about navigation issues, uh, understanding how to navigate for information, seek information. But is it uh, more about skills, like understanding the technology, knowing how to sort of navigate, you know, like what we take for granted in terms of menu, or is it more about they don't actually get information about the government services or the, the, the knowledge that is out there? I think they do have they do have information on what government provides, such as you know access to UPU that service to um, to apply for higher learning institutions. But um, when it comes to applying for UPUs, like how do how do we log in um, on you know the two factor authentic authentication things like that are so different from Facebook and Twitter. So. Uh, things that are beyond social media is is alien to them. I mean, the system, not exactly uh, like whether the government provides that kind of service or not. So mm-hmm. I, I think better we factor that out. So mm-hmm. basically, familiarity on how to sign in, meaningful use, uh, how to use internet and browser services meaningfully. Uh, mm-hmm. I, in terms of whether connectivity is more important or literacy is more important, I think it has uh, it, ha- it has similar importance and similar priorities because, for example, uh, communities in PPRs, there's one PR near Jalan Bellamy. Uh, uh. So the, I think the name of the PPR is Sri Skandar. So Jalan Bellamy, very KL, right? Like Yeah, yeah. That's like... From- sen- Central KL, yeah. Well, 10 minutes from KL Central. But then we have only like one one or two bar of internet, mobile internet connection. So mm. sometimes even though you're urban, uh, I don't know why, but normally the lesser, uh, the B40 areas has less connectivity. So, mm. uh, but, but these people uh, generally have good knowledge of meaningful access. Uh, towards meaningful access. So, so I, too, I check out uh, the importance, the priorities are similar. Okay. Thank, thanks for that. Let's go to Frida because a lot of the examples that we heard through the news comes from Sabah. What exactly is happening in terms of the digital divides that you've personally experienced or witnessed? So in Sabah, I think it's kind of the norm already for everyone to experience some periods of um, disconnectivity. It's very apparent in villages like uh, my my home, one of my hometowns, um, because the village itself is not located near roads um, where all of the internet connectivity um, bases and sites are stationed. Because of course, most of the people traveling between the the towns they will be using the internet on the road itself. So village just who are far away from them, they will not have um, the access. So this is when all those stories of people traveling to like um, the up hills, traveling mm-hmm. up hills uh, to find better connectivity because that's where most of the roads are situated. Um, that one, this particular example is in Kampung Lokos. Uh, that is my hometown. And another one, which is a bit more interesting because uh, in this case, it's very obvious that they do not have connectivity because there's no infrastructural access. Uh, we conducted a, a field survey with the residences of Kampung Kapayan Apin Apin Baru in Keningau. And for, based on the colleagues who has went there, they told us that there's at least two telco towers um, and they are connected by roads as well. Uh, although... And they, they, they have all the systems in place, water, electricity, but most of the time, uh, there's shortage of supplies on all of these um, basic infrastructures. So sometimes even calls can't come out from there uh, and come out in the sense that you can't make calls. Um, so there's this really terrible situation going on. It's not just the fact that you don't have any infrastructures next to you, that you don't have connectivity. You can have all the infrastructures you want right there and you still won't get connected. So that's what's happening. Mm. I want to add on something. So um, 
there's an analysis uh, by some of my colleagues who work with uh, rural area, youth in rural area. Uh, definitely those, uh, those people who does not have meaningful access, uh, it is mainly because of the devices they use. So you, we can see, for example, Orang Asli, I've worked in various Orang Asli communities, all of them have phones. Mm-hmm. But meaningful connectivity normally needs someone to have a laptop or a computer. But And whenever we offer classes on, you know, how to even start your own email, your uh, how to really utilize uh, Google technologies, Google Suites, mm-hmm. um, most of their uh, problem really is that computers are intimidating and it is all in it is all in English. So sometimes with these people, I wish computers can like switch their language to Bahasa Melayu <laughs> or, you know, their native language uh, without having, you know, some of the terms be translated to, you know, something very weird, <laughs> very weird translation, <laughs> yeah. But thanks for pointing out the uh, the issue of the devices. But is that also is that about the the capacity of the device? Uh, because you can get email through through the phone. And the other question is because a lot of these issues, like the digital divides, uh, no matter what how you look at it, right? Whether it's um, uh, a social issue or a class issue, geographical location, age, purchasing power, gender, etc. Uh, the government would often just look at uh, as a solution infrastructure and costs. Is this sufficient uh, in your mind, Frida? Is this sufficient so that every person would have uh, equal internet access? I think that's uh, it's not a good approach for the government to take, honestly, because um, as we are well aware, the government's report card is very based on quantity. It's like we built um, this much of towers. We have installed this much of 5G bases uh, around so-and-so areas. Um, but they've never actually looked at the quality that they're providing. Uh, it, to, in that sense, uh, there was actually a recent report, I don't know if you um, read it, uh, about how um, MCMC, they re- they did a um, com- complaint notice, a com- uh, compliance notice um, on three telco companies in Langkawi. And because they noticed that their services was not matching up to the quality and they, they're going to uh, issue out um, the necessary actions for that. So I think that's a really good case that shows that they were paying attention to the quality. However, they do not maintain this um, throughout all of I, I just feel like it, there's such a lack of them actually looking into the feed uh, feedbacks for all of these um, locations, given that it does take a huge amount of people, a labor, uh, and also planning and this kind of thing. But how do they know that they are actually making an impact if they do not assess the previous um, uh, initiatives that they've taken? So that is definitely lacking uh, in terms of feedback and understanding what they're actually delivering. And to that sense, I would imagine that it is also it comes down to the policy that's in place. Most of the policies in place by the government, it's Honestly speaking, it's quite uh, business-minded. It's all about uh, we. as long as we have reached um, 90% of the population, it means our job is done. So whether or not people are receiving, 90% of the people are even receiving 90% of the services that's intended, it's another story. It's up to the telco companies to to fix that, this kind of thing. But there, it's really like uh, I let go of everything. I let go of all this responsibility to the telco companies, but there should be regulations in place on the actual quality of the service that's being provided and also it, um, to extend a bit further to ensure that everyone actually gets it, not just based on um, population size, geographic, uh, because um, how this policy works is that they will provide uh, internet connectivity as long as there's 90% of the population there. So what about the other 10 percent? It's like they get ignored completely. Yeah. Just reflecting on what Frida said, um, 
And also the point that you made about the digital devices, is it is it more a business approach that the government is taking? I mean, mobile devices are cheaper, they are portable, so the reliance on the wireless connection rather than broadband uh, seems to be the, the way to go for, for the government. What do you think? Uh, well, firstly, I echo what Frida said about population. I think uh, the issue of excess equality amongst um, low places with low population is really the same with uh, electricity. It's really the same with uh, access to roads. So, they, for example, I have this one project in uh, Kampung Bukit Telaga. Uh, this one, orang asli kampung very near to uh, Fraser Hill. So, this is like... This is like 500 meters away from the main road, from the main grid. But they are excluded from electricity just because um, there's only like 15 households there. I think uh, the same it's reasoning... Yeah, pardon? I mean, 500 meters is not far. Exactly. <laughs> 500 meters from the grid. They can easily just connect uh, connect to the land, to Satu. But then, uh, because of the population, only only 15 households, they excluded these people from, uh, from development. I think similar to internet connectivity. So, for example, youth in Long Lama, uh, they normally will... Uh, will will row boats to Long Lama Town just to get internet connection every every day or every every one or two days. But the kampungs are like what? Uh, maybe tak sampai one kilometer away. The government should uh, make sure that access are equal because that, that's what governments are supposed to be standing up for people uh, for for the lesser lesser able um, smaller population and the big companies uh, can work together with the governments to access uh, to give access to the bigger populations. But uh, of course, there needs to be cross subsidization with the business entities and the government to give. Uh, proper equal access to the smaller populations yeah i was just trying to sorry i was just trying to interrupt just now because the uh you mentioned the pprs right yep so, so you know where they only have like one band <laughs> <laughs> and but then if you say it's based on population size usually the pprs have a high density so mm-hmm. what is the issue exactly is there a different policy actually than uh, in in urban areas, it depends on purchasing power, but in rural areas and you know geographical sort of uh, difficult geogra- geographical terrain, then it becomes an issue of you know population size. What do you think? I think uh, hypothetically, because I'm not in the industry like the telco industry myself. Mm. Hypothetically, I think uh, this is a problem they have with telcos and or both telcos and the government. I think the main problem is also population. Uh, like if the population is so, the density is so high, they cannot find a way to measure whether uh, two towers is enough, for example. Mm. So I think measurement is a problem, but this is just a, uh, just a hypothesis. Because for example, I live in Damansara and we are... Uh, Damansara are people with higher purchasing power, but some areas, uh, even the even the big houses, sometimes they don't have enough uh, in, enough quality connectivity. So uh, that's another. I think if government uh, needs to better their developmental approach, they have to consider. They have to really focus on measurements. Yeah. So so thanks for those. Uh, you know, um, insights and in terms of uh, what you've been able to observe, is because uh, Frida mentioned that they actually know that when quality is uh, not as good, and maybe because it's Langkawi, right? Because Langkawi is, you know, it's a tourist uh, area. Um, there's definitely a lot of attention towards, you know, international sort of free trade there or free trade zone. Uh, so the priority might be different, but it doesn't mean that uh, the government doesn't know what to measure. But current statistics appear to suggest that 
that's not what they actually want to measure, right? So, for example, like the the gaps in terms of um, access, the gaps in terms of quality. Clearly, in urban areas, uh, there are definite gaps for for p- people who belong to the B40 group. Should there be a different way of measuring these gaps? Um, and what what can we or what can we sort of suggest to government in this case? So this is a heavy one. Frida, you want to start first? <laughs> I, I think I have something to, uh, a kind of a slightly different perspective to look at it um, because you brought up the Langkawi case. Mm. Um, as we know um, right now, me, my own brother is like also traveling a lot and he is going to Langkawi. So I know it is a popular destination at the moment for those who can't travel overseas, but they need a break. So that's mm-hmm. why there's a high concentration of people there who can't get good internet access. So everyone is complaining, why can't I get good internet access? Um, And they are able to go back home and then um, message. I mean, because usually how, what happens when you uh, encounter an internet problem, you send in a complaint and those with internet connectivity, they're able to do so electronically. But in places like Sabah, where you are suffering from bad connectivity, but you do you, you can't even send out a message to tell them that you have bad connectivity because you don't even have the means of doing that. It, these kind of situations really um, needs hands-on approaches by the government in the sense that, um, for example, the Jundela report for uh, 2020, uh, it was prepared without including Sarawak inside. And this due to the fact that they couldn't travel to Sarawak. So it shows that, unfortunately, um, to get meaningful data requires uh, a face-to-face interaction with mm-hmm. the issue in the, the location itself. So uh, there is the need to uh, allocate more resources in order to get uh, meaningful uh, feedback to fill in those gaps. Yeah. That's a really interesting perspective. Thanks so much for that, Frida. Mm, I want to add on. Sure. Uh, I, I still stand on population because uh, and data populate data on population. Sorry, because uh, I I've never seen any reports by MCMC or any of um a, any places lah that states that states the density of internet users in at one place. Mm. By state, yes, you have like Chunto, uh, one million, two million users. But then, um, in specific places, there, uh, there, there are no reports. Maybe it is, maybe it is done by the telco companies, but um, the pub- companies like uh, data like that should be published by the government. So, uh, NGOs or you know, investors can spend more on, you know, increasing the quality of one high, highly populated area. So, yeah, yeah, and that mapping is actually quite um, quite critical because uh, we do that for rainfall, which is, you know, um, something that we know like how heavy the rainfall is in a particular area, right? So because then we know which areas are prone to flooding. Uh, which areas need better drainage. Uh, of course, then there's the bodies of water to consider. But uh, I mean, for internet access, clearly uh, in terms of density, in terms of how many people are actually using one or two towers, telco towers, then that that also will sort of tell us, okay, where are the gaps, right? But um, to add on to that uh, argument, it would be even more difficult to map that out because, for example, one person may not just have one device or even two. Um, so to be able to have a very good accuracy on density itself would be would really require big data. Yeah, yeah. So it would be like a number of people, number of devices, and, and sort of like a ratio. Yeah, comparison maybe. I, I don't think it's impossible to do because they they are sort of measuring access based on devices, number of devices, which is, of course, quite skewed in terms of the picture that it gives. But uh, I, I think it's just a matter of like really thinking through. Let's just go to another point where, you know, the stories that have been coming out, uh, especially because of the MCO and the challenges that students faced in having access to, to their lessons, 
the stories appear to suggest that there is a serious gender gap because a lot of the the stories focus on the girls, you know, the female students and the challenges that they face. Uh, yet, you know, girls are actually doing much better in terms of education. So uh, is there really a gender digital divide? Uh, you know, because people would say, well, you know, yeah, the girls face the problem, but so do the boys. What do you think? Right. So uh, definitely uh, gender, this gender factor is in every in, in everything. For example, in uh, in Kampung Orangasi, uh, well, maybe one household can buy one or, uh, can buy one or two devices. Uh, normally, the boys would get the, the more expensive ones rather than the girls. And then if they work to get... Uh, to, to get those devices mm. it is a norm that you know girls get paid less than boys because why in uh, in 3D work in low paid work normally uh, they have this notion that okay guys are more boys are more how to say more durable thus they should be paid more so from the gender from the gender wage gap itself we can uh, also conclude that they also uh, it also reflects to the uh, device ownership. So that's one. <laughs> mm, mm, yeah. But in terms of uh, meaningful access, I see that girls are generally more res- uh, more resourceful to utilize internet meaningfully compared to compared to boys. So youth lah, right? uh, when it comes to youth, for example, I, I think we should uh, we should do a survey on this, like why what do guys uh, do with internet connectivity and what do girls do anyway. And girls, gen- the ones that I met, I've met, they use they use internet to sell things. They, they go on Shopee. They, they do some shopping to find good deals on Shopee. Um, they, they work. Uh, they, they know how to like create resumes on Catbar. Boys, guys in general, uh, they do PUBG. <laughs> <laughs> I I kind of want to add on to uh, Masara's first point uh, to go in a bit more deeper on why um, the male population, especially the students, they tend to be favored with the better devices. Mm. Uh, it's because, uh, at least in Sabah, there was a research on uh, gender inequality among uh, ma- I mean among the population here, and there is the inherent bias that the son will always be um, will always be the, the, the treasured one because he is seen as the breadwinner while the doctor is seen as um, even if you get an education your end goal in life is to get married uh, it's not to have a profession so you it's fine for you to score well academically but you're going to end up marrying someone and going you're going to be depending on a guy in the end because even competitively when you fight for a, a vacancy, almost always the male gets selected. So you're like, you're just waiting around to get married. So it's a safer bet to invest in my son so he can guarantee our, li- our family a better future. So it's kind of, um, it's not said out loud, but the way that you, that people here uh, base their questions, especially in gatherings, like uh, as a girl myself, when I go to family gatherings, they're like, or when you're getting married with your boyfriend and then you talk about, oh, I'm thinking of furthering my studies and stuff and they give you these looks like, oh, I thought at your age you should be finding someone to settle down with. Um, so these does translate into actions and behaviors, unfortunately. Yeah, thanks for that, Frida. It reminds me of how people would see also, you know, giving credit to poor households and uh, they would sort of frown giving credit or loans to poor women compared to the male household, uh, head of household, right? But then they realize that if the woman, no matter how small a loan or credit that you give to her, it will benefit the household uh, with a multiplier effect, right? It will benefit like fivefold. Whereas uh, if men were to get that credit or loan, it would usually just benefit himself largely. So, so in this sense, I mean, you know, it just reminds me that there could be research where how does internet access or the use of internet connected device benefit the household when it's owned by a woman and when it's owned by a man. So that would be quite interesting, actually. To add on on 
you know spending patterns i think mm. spending patterns of uh, male and females there uh, they are also different for example this is very apparent in pprs um those parties that i met uh, that i met before kan uh, some of some of them are have really really good devices they have iphones they have those flagship models but when it comes to macchis normally they will they will have normal phones not flagship mm-hmm. ones mainly because they uh, they spend more for the household it is more important to buy uh to buy vegetables to buy lauk you know going to buy the rumah rather than uh spending it to <laughs> uh to buy devices mm yeah yeah the priorities are very different so so reflecting on what you've said uh and what you've shared in terms of insights in terms of what you've witnessed uh what do you think should be our understanding when minister YB Anwar Musa said that or declared that internet access should be a human right what do you think should actually be promoted and protected in terms of uh internet access as a human right to talk about internet access as a, a basic human right so it's fundamental uh, it's the it, you are equating it to getting water supply you are equating it to having food on the table and this is uh, i guess we can pen it under category under the category of a modern fundamental human right because you can't imagine moving forwards or having an equitable lifestyle akin to global citizens without uh, connectivity so if we put it in that light then there has to be other way other things to address as well um aside from the obvious um, technical and technological issues uh, relating to internet itself it's how do we actually power this uh, and i mentioned electricity because it's such a it's such a disappointment for sabahans um that uh, i would say around 33 to 40% of our um land area our geographical area in itself has very limited um supply of electricity that most of the time and it's even in my own uh village we have to power generate this in order to have um electrical power and we mm. need uh, diesel and oil and this kind of um uh, f- fuels to yeah. power just for electricity and so it, um some people even say you want internet but we can't even have a stable electricity source how is that possible and to address things as a human right we need to start from the root causes um and there's definitely a lot to tackle mm-hmm. uh, but it, this is where <laughs> this is where attention should go to honestly I totally agree so we did a survey can for example in kampung orang asli bukit laga they spent 70 ringgit on on fuel to just charge their phones so every month and their income is like uh, sometimes 200 sometimes 300 per month yeah. and most goes to buy goes to buy petrol or diesel uh i i think there are four dimensions on internet access as a human right definitely quality the first firstly definitely quality of the connection secondly affordability so uh i know that nowadays with uh devices from china the cost of owning a phone has uh drastically changed you know more affordable but quality devices which is uh which is very which is needed for uh b40s uh they they would they spend a lot to to acquire for comparatively to higher those who earn more but they also with, with that much of investment they they also expect the phone to last longer so mm. there need to be that uh, affordability is an issue for quality devices but definitely capacity to use the internet fourth point so it is cyber security so for some rural areas uh, so for some people in rural areas especially those in their 40s in their 50s after all this uh stories about people getting scammed that rather they would rather not use maybank to you at all or um you know the usual access that we do not uh, even opening up an email they refrain to do 
so and do it old school. Uh, mainly because they are afraid to get uh, to get scammed. So I think this is problematic because um, you, you know uh, with if the government can ensure that everyone would have uh, secure would have their data secured and all. Um, more more people, especially the elderly, uh, can go online and access and have meaningful internet access. Mm. Yeah, but it means a lot of uh, some sort of like uh, re-education, especially for the elderly. But um, coming back to what the minister said and what both of you are talking about, it does seem to suggest that we can't just look at one ministry to address the issue. We'd have to actually have some sort of interministerial, multi-stakeholder kind of approach, especially with communities themselves, um, maybe offering you know some kind of solution. But what about the the other aspect? Because internet access is one, but we also know that the government is quite big on censorship. We also have to deal with misinformation, disinformation. The people that you work with in terms of the communities, in terms of uh, the B40 groups, how do they see these issues? Do they see that this as uh, something that is really frustrating, annoying? Does is it re- have any relevance in terms of you know us addressing it? I think in the cases that I've encountered, like the the field survey that we did, people do not realize that they're being censored. Is mm. probably one way to say it. So. It's what they say. What you don't know doesn't hurt you. And there, there, there will be um, these kind of um, when they meet other people and then they realize there are some things that they don't know. They might there, there would be two reactions. It would either be they would be very accepting of the new information, or they would uh, fight to the death, saying that the other person is totally wrong. Um, and I think that is one of the the dangers of censorship because the inaccess to knowledge. Uh, prevents people from making clear decisions. Um, for example, uh, on <laughs> this very good example is about on vaccines, mm. uh, because most of the as as everyone knows during the pandemic, you can't go around handing out flyers, especially not handing out flyers. Uh, so everything was done digitally, mm. uh, and everyone was saying like, "You need to go get a vaccine, otherwise, um, so and so." Yeah, but. In, there's a there's a huge community, unfortunately, in Malaysia, in Sabah, of um, anti-vaxxers, mm-hmm. and this this is because um, mo- most of the communities they're still uh, quite traditional in the sense that anything that is foreign, they, they it's met with distrust, and they've only heard of um, these. Uh, you would say urban legends of how when someone gets um, a vaccine, their leg swells up. So they're like, oh my God, I'm definitely not going to get a vaccine. Um, and this will cause other cat- catastrophes. So it's not, it's, it's, okay, so it's not a de- de- deliberate censorship, but it goes back to not having internet access. So it does censor you from a lot of knowledge. Yeah, I think the government would also need to employ some sort of psychological, anthropological uh, approach because people are more, a lot of people are more interested in in sexy stories, in uh, in controversies. So they tend to believe uh, things that are closest to them rather than uh, vaccines. Uh, vaccines, for example, helps us uh, control uh, the, the effect of the virus towards uh, someone, you know. So uh, if people tend to go against things that they don't understand kan tapi I, I honestly think uh, the government's campaign yang tak pasti jangan share that one is that one is actually very good uh, in terms of censorship kan I honestly think they don't care about uh, you know the community at large don't really care about censorship because they don't uh, censorship itself is a concept that is alien to uh, the B40s to the orang asli Nobody mm. is, uh, you know, telling them off, for example. And they in, in the internet, they really believe in uh, freedom of speech. They believe in freedom to tell, to, to say whatever they want. So uh, I think in terms of gov- government senses them from 
some real data that what they don't realize tapi when it comes to you know censoring negativity hate speech etc it is something that they don't get mainly because they treasure all the freedom mm-hmm. <laughs> i actually want to add sorry to what sure, sure. Said okay. when 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 she's mentioned uh, censorship of data uh, that is uh, it, it doesn't really pertain to anyone else other than those who are curious Uh, researchers, ac- academicians, students, but there is a huge censorship of data, and I speak this frankly on the kind of um, reports that the government is giving, uh, mm-hmm. because I was going through the financial reports on um, telco towers, uh, the setup of Jindela and everything, and there was um, the the way that they listed out how they are managing the funds. It was too general to understand how the money is actually being used. So there was one particular data that just said uh, claims made by the the company who who set sets up these initiatives and stuff, and it was just under claims. So mm-hmm. we have no idea what claims they were making, and. It, to that effect we do not know if it is according to the value that they have um, s- stipulated there because there was a little uh, if you read further in the report this was for uh, for 2020 uh, the said company actually went to court uh, with MCMC uh, because uh, the initial proposed budget was lower than the final claim that they were asking for so there is such a lack of transparency uh between that uh contract in itself but also within the the reader and the, 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 the researcher as well as the report so it, it's such a censorship to understand because if we want to make a change we want to know what's actually happening and if we are not allowed access to such information then nothing can be done Yeah, I think uh, I, I think there's definitely more to just talking about infrastructure and affordability. There is the other sort of environment, which, like uh, Frida, you said it. You know, like if we don't know, it doesn't hurt us until we <laughs> we suddenly realize, oh, we need to know. And uh, but where is it? <laughs> where is that yes. information, right? So, and, and Mastura, you also talked about this in a way. If they don't know about Like what's supposed to be helping them? Then how do they actually find out about it? So, in terms of the institutions that you work with, and secondly, the communities that you work with, internet access has definitely enabled many forms of expressions, interactions, and ability to witness. You've sort of uh, talked about this in terms of can they actually provide feedback to the government or to voice their complaints? To what extent are they able to, and what needs to be done if the government is really serious about getting this feedback? I would say the government needs to invest in a system for proper feedbacks. Uh, governments don't have customer service systems. I think the best customer service that I got is really from Food Panda. You know, Just, you know, <laughs> uh, complain, complain until later I got voucher. <laughs> you know, I got refund. This. The government should see their service to be, you know, they, they have to strive to have a customer service to be to be that competent to really solve problems. Rather, um, when it comes to internet connection, you have to lodge a report with MCMC, and that involves logging on a computer, sending an email, um, and you know, uh, a lot of those people who are restricted from internet access, they don't really check their emails frequently. So how do people get feedback? So uh, I think the first uh, the, the first thing that the government should do is to uh, really study what feedback system works for different, different kind of communities. And it cannot be, you know, putting putting a feedback form on on the website and expect everyone to like, you know, uh, fill, it, fill, it in, fill in. And that will discount feedback from people who cannot read or write. Mm, mm. I concur with what Mastura says. You need to, there, there needs to be studies done on the best way to get uh, feedback from each community, although it is a bit um, time-consuming. But I would say to look back to what's 
already there. You have um, community leaders in the uh, villages, for example, and they know best to speak in the native language or how to get along with everyone. So it could be that um, district offices come down and then directly deal with the, the Ketua Kampung on understanding the situation at hand. So the second point on giving feedbacks really is uh, focus group discussions. I believe uh, that the government doesn't do good enough on, of an effort to have everyone included. And um, uh, I think in terms of making, uh, of creating a good and effective focus group discussions, fear should be put aside. And most of these people who created surveys, who create, uh, who create uh, surveys that are subjective in nature, mm. uh, they because they are from the government, uh, a lot of people are scared to say the right thing. Mm. Ah. When you say scared to say the right thing, um, scared to complain. Yeah, actually, to... I want to add something to that. I think it would be interesting from a gender lens as well. Um, Sabah, typically, we are very um, mild people. We are very soft-spoken and the women folk tend to be very gentle as well, um, especially uh, with strangers with people they meet for the first time so mm. uh this can be seen in classrooms like when you ask them a question the ones who tend to be more brave would be the males mm. so if you have a focus group discussion um there is the possibility that we women will be more afraid to speak up just because it is our, in our culture, it's in the behavior. If a female officer was to be in charge of focus group discussions, it would uh, encourage the females to speak up more as well. Yeah, and I, I would actually encourage them to actually have separate focus group discussions because I've also had the privilege of running a focus group discussion with uh, Orang Asli, but when the, you know, the ketua is there, <laughs> Ah uh, yes, yeah. yeah, yes. yeah. The, the dynamics is always to allow him to speak, right, or to see first what he says, and then yes. most of the time they'll just agree, even if they don't agree. I think um, yes. it would be hard, hard to disagree. Yeah. Um, yeah. For the, I'm I'm going to the same example of the same kampung. So uh, basically, when we when we go there, the ketua kampung will say like, oh, everything is okay here. Don't worry, semua okay. Padahal 15 rumah tak ada electricity. Yeah, yeah. And they have different ideas of what could work. So, and the women are affected differently as well. Just one last question, because a lot of people, and Frida, you talked about electricity, the need for electricity before you can get good internet access. But a lot of times, internet access is just seen as that right a public good like electricity and water um and not necessarily a human right as uh, what we express so how can we move from this being just something basic to something that is necessary if we really want people to be fully informed so that they can make better decisions about their lives better decisions about services better decisions about what aid they take or don't take i think in a way, um, it has started to, how do you say, it? people have started to realize the importance of an internet uh, connectivity because in the survey that we uh, conducted, one of our questions is actually how important is internet to you? And um, we made them compare it with water and electricity uh, and they all were valued just uh, the same. It's just an equal uh, oh, wow. need. So uh, although sometimes uh, they weren't really fully able to understand the question, but when we further interviewed them, they said that it is important because uh, during the pandemic, especially when people were um, left, uh, how do you mm. say, they, they, had, they lost their jobs yeah. uh, in, in the office. So they had no choice but to become uh, digital entrepreneurs. And they were like, okay, I need to know how to use the internet to make a living because they were able to make that relation between um, survival and connectivity, which mm. um, the digital life was able to offer, uh, you would say, uh, make it more affordable. Because, for example, uh, you'd say like 10, 15 years ago, if you were to make business calls, that would take like uh, hours of like uh, getting in touch with someone and that would run your, your call bills like so high, your phone bills. Uh, but with the digital uh, connectivity, you can send texts to people for free. 
and that really helps um, uh, entrepreneurs to make that connection and to make that sale. So when people start to equate it to survival, I think that is when uh, more and more are convinced that uh, internet connectivity is a basic human right. Yeah, and uh, that close relationship to livelihood. Honestly, um, I don't see why public goods can't be uh, can't be a human right because I personally think electricity and water uh, are human rights because <laughs> yeah uh, nowadays yeah I completely agree. So for for um, to have no one left behind, I think. Government should approach uh, these excesses, like electricity, water, internet access, in uh, a spirit of equality. So uh, don't uh, stop thinking about you know we should invest in this area because there are like what uh, a lot of households. We should have a minimum to have minimum 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 number of households to have electricity, water, and internet access. Uh, we should stop that uh, that way that way of doing things because definitely we are leaving people behind. So I believe the government's job mainly is to make sure no one is left behind. I, I completely agree. I I think because even quality of water, whether people whether people face water shortages, etc. It depends where you live, you know, which privileged class you are and so on. So that really has to stop. Uh, so thank you so much um, to both of you uh, for your insights, for, for sharing, you know, your experiences with the people you work with, the research that you've done. It's really useful information. For me personally, I learned a lot from the conversation you had, especially from a gender lens perspective, that was really interesting. Thank you for having us here. Uh, thank you, Gossip Team, for organizing this. I hope MCMC would listen somehow. You guys are on Spotify and they are on Spotify. I hope they consciously uh, find more content on internet rights like this. Uh, and I really hope from our conversation there will be meaningful change in development. So we just heard from Frida Jane Madios, who's the research manager from Wisdom Foundation Sabah, and Mastura M. Rashid, who's vice president for strategy and development in Impact Malaysia. They shared uh, a number of uh, insights, you know, what we need to really think about if we're saying internet access is a human right and how critical it is in terms of the situations, uh, not just in rural areas, but also in urban poor areas where the issue of internet access is also closely linked to the issue of electricity, good supply, and how you know certain, certain peoples in Malaysia are still being denied uh, just good access to internet so that they can actually live better quality lives. So thank you again to, to both our guest speakers. If you enjoyed listening to Gossip, do follow us and stay tuned for our next episode on writing social media algorithms. How do people do this consciously or unconsciously? Are social media algorithms about marketing or are they really tools of patriarchy? You can find Chris Network on Instagram, Twitter and Facebook. Remember, Gossip is where alternative perspectives make sense.